With Friends Like These is brought to you by Drops. We're doing more cleaning than ever before. But it's hard to find eco-friendly cleaning products that actually work. Check out Drops, the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, you'll see in no time how great their products are. Drops delivers powerful cleaning from nature with plant and mineral-based formulas to your door in low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in oceans and landfills. Sign up for auto shipments from Drops, Laundry Pods, and Dishwasher Pods to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel your subscription at any time. Use code FRIENDS for 25% off your first order. That's Drops with two Ps. Check out their custom cleaning solutions for every need. Visit drops.com, enter FRIENDS to get 25% off your first order today. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. When I first heard about Sarah Schulman's book, Conflict is Not Abuse, Overstating Harm, Community Responsibility, and the Duty of Repair, the idea clicked. I thought of how white people call the police at the drop of a hat. I thought about how calling someone a racist is not, in fact, worse than being a racist. And once I actually started reading it, well, she talks about that stuff, and it's really bracing. And then she turns her gimlet eye onto the ways that well-meaning liberals, people like you and me, can also overstate harm, can also bring in the police state in ways that wind up hurting black people, even though we don't mean to. In the book, Shulman argues against shunning and silencing in all its forms, including when it comes to allegations of sexual harms. We should not, she says, necessarily believe women. Instead, she offers a framework of intervention and de-escalation where everyone, including those accused of being abusers, gets to be heard. To be honest, I had a hard time with some of her ideas, and the interview gets a little bumpy at times. And obviously, there is a lot of discussion of sexual violence, though mostly in a pretty general way. Ironically enough, Sarah Shulman is against trigger warnings. And may I suggest, if you are not up for that topic, that you listen to last week's episode with Chris Gosden about the history of magic, because that is a great episode for anyone who just is not ready to deal with, you know, the world as it is today. If you are in the mood, as much as you can be, for the world as it is today, well then, this is the show for you. Coming right up, Sarah Shulman. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. So your your book is so fascinating um, and engaging and provocative. I want to start with an example that I think a lot of people who might be sympathetic to the general aims of progressivism um, will be able to get. And I think is a good example of the kind of thing that you're talking about as a systemic issue in your book. Conflict is not abuse. One of the things you do is untangle the ways that the anti-violence movement of the 60s kind of morphed into something else entirely. So can you take us maybe through that change as a way of talking through, at least institutionally also, this idea of conflict is not abuse? Sure. Well, let's start by going way, way back to when I was born, 1958 in New York City. 
And at that time, if a woman was raped, she could not get a conviction without a witness. So her own testimony was not enough. So when the women's anti-violence movement first emerges in the mid-60s, it's at a time where women really are not identified with the state. The state is the enemy of women. In fact, very few women are even in the state as lawyers, police officers, judges, politicians, etc. And so they originally developed ideas that were what we close to what we now call restorative justice, although those words didn't exist at the time. So for example, uh, abortion was illegal, so there would be an illegal abortion network. If a woman was raped, she could call a rape crisis center and speak to another woman who had been raped. There were all kinds of solutions that bypassed the state. The women's anti-violence movement was not asking the state to intervene to hurt men. It was more about empowering women in the absence of the state. Uh, and so all these social services were started at a grassroots level, you know, shelters and uh, self-defense classes and all this kind of stuff. And eventually in the 70s, there was a program called CETA, where the federal government was funding people to be like office staff for these grassroots movements. But when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, he, one of the very first things he did was completely defund CETA. And a lot of these community movements just kind of fell apart because they didn't have any money and they didn't have any paid staff. So what you see in the 80s is this movement into the state apparatus of taking care of, quote, issues of violence. But this is really um, a contradiction because, you know, the United States government is one of the greatest sources of violence in the world. And so to have the police and the U.S. government, the state, be in charge of ending violence is impossible. You know, so whereas the early women's movement saw violence as being caused by racism, poverty, and patriarchy, the government loves racism, patriarchy, and poverty. And, and you also start to see in, the, in popular culture in the 80s, things like Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, you know, and this type of television propaganda where there's a terrible, terrible, terrible perpetrator, and there's a purely innocent victim. And the solution is the police. So the interesting transition here to me is you go from, again, like you said, for these grassroots organizations that are not involving the state, although it sounds like this CETA was a helpful tool for them. And then you get into the 80s where what happens is the state is responsible for making all of the decisions here, right, about who's the victim, who's the perpetrator, and what are we going to do about it? And also, who's the counselor? Because you have to be certified by the state and you have to get funding from the state. Yeah. And so, as you, you point out in the book, what happens is the focus moves from the victim to the perpetrator, right? Or so-called perpetrator. Maybe we'll <laughs> touch on that in a second, right? Uh, and it becomes less about anti-violence. And I, I think this is a distinction you make. And more about stopping, and I'm using air quotes here or in my language, which you can't see and people in the audience can't see, but stopping violence. It moves more from empowering women to punishing men. And, and relying on the police to do that. 
Right, which means that it's poor men and men of color who are going to be incarcerated around these laws, new laws. <laughs> With the growth of this state apparatus that is uh, anti not anti-violence, but stopping violence, um, domestic violence statistics do, do go down, right? But you point out we don't really have a good way of knowing if they're going down equally among all demographics. And in fact, it seems like where they're probably going down is among people who are privileged, right? Well, because the state cannot interfere in the lives of the wealthy in the way that it can in the lives of the poor. And it's being used as, and, and so in a weird way, this stop violence movement is being weaponized. Yeah, I mean, it's not weird. It's that anything that bureaucratized by the government gets you for their aims. You know, it's not revolutionary anymore in the way it was when women were resisting male violence. And another thing that happens, and here I think we're going to get into the actual title of the book and the actual sort of overarching idea, is that this way of talking about relationships in terms of domestic abuse and abuse becomes popularized and also weaponized? Well, because you're not, we're not trying to solve problems anymore. What we're trying to decide is who should be punished. And this becomes the dominant paradigm. Like today, a lot of times if someone is victimized in some situation or if they feel terrible as a consequence of an experience, the only way that they feel heard is if the person who they feel is the cause of their pain is punished. These two things are completely connected. You're not heard until the other person is punished. But what if we separated them? What if people could express their pain and get the support that they need and have that be separate from the question of another person being incarcerated, for example, or expelled, or in some way shunned? And I want to keep going with the domestic violence um, example here because it's another place where there's a real revelation in the book, which is you go to a workshop. Yeah, it was a, it was a, so work, a workshop for social workers in New York City who work with uh, people who were, felt that they were experiencing domestic violence. And it was run by an incredibly brilliant social worker named Catherine Hodes, who had had many, many years working in the domestic violence movement. So it seems like you had a personal revelation when you went to this workshop because of the way the language that she used. Yeah, she was the first person who I ever heard use the phrase conflict is not abuse. And what she did was she defined them. Conflict is power struggle and abuse is power over. That means that abuse is something that no matter what you do, you cannot transform it or change it. So for example, systemic racism, right? There's nothing that a person of color can do that causes it or stops it as an individual. And so if, if, if you're not participating in any kind of escalation and yet it is occurring, that is abuse. Conflict is when there's some kind of participation in creating escalation. Now, Catherine was very clear that conflict can be more painful than abuse. Conflict could be more destructive than abuse, for example. It's not that abuse is worse and conflict is your fine. 
but that the we should be happy to discover that we are participating in a power struggle with somebody else that we have some power to alter. But instead, we're in this strange social moment where we prefer to see ourselves as being abused, as having absolutely no ability to transform a situation. Because if we are abused, then we are eligible for compassion. Because socially, the bar is so low to get compassion and support from other people that you have to be completely and totally innocent to get any help. But I argue that anyone who asks for help deserves it. And that's a completely different set of values. And I'm one of these writers who I don't take a pre-existing argument and pick one pre-existing side and then defend it. Most of the books that I've written are about articulating an entirely new paradigm, right? So this book is a totally new idea. And I think the big revelation of the book, which does examine conflict from the interpersonal and the most intimate to the question of the government versus the people to the question of the geopolitical. I think that the revelation is that People who are dominant and are raised with dominance see themselves as oppressed if other people make, ask them to be accountable. However, those of us who are traumatized can also feel oppressed by difference. We can also feel that if someone's asking us to be accountable, that it's just so hard to just keep it together, that any kind of self-critique or questioning ourselves would make it all fall apart. And so that this phenomenon of seeing yourself as abused because someone else has a different perspective than you and is asking you to question yourself belongs to both the dominant and the traumatized. The place where I started to feel like, ooh, I'm going to be made uncomfortable here, was in talking about the issue of um, desire and misplaced desire or unacknowledged desire or not knowing your own desire? Well, where the, I mean, the place that I start with in that realm is that inflated accusations of abuse make it harder for people who are really being abused to be heard. And that in, often inflated accusations of abuse come from people who are more empowered and are used to being heard and feel that they have a right to not be made uncomfortable. And so that's the entry into thinking about what is the social damage of false accusation? Because actually anyone can accuse anybody of anything. And being accused, so when, when a police off, a white police officer she kills an unarmed black man because he felt an anxiety, an interior anxiety in which he felt afraid, even though he's the one who's actually dangerous. That accusation is lethal. Now, in, in the sexual realm, we have many examples in history. Uh, the one I point to is the Scottsboro case, but there's many, many more. And we just saw one with um, Amy Cooper in Central Park. Where historically white women in some cases have made false accusations towards black men that they were being assaulted, sexually assaulted, or being threatened in some way, and they manipulate 
racism and the state to protect themselves from other kinds of anxieties. So that, when we look at that, and I think at this point, I mean, Amy Cooper brought Scottsboro to the present. It means that we have to question things like, um, you know, whatever a woman says is true. That women believe women. When a woman makes an accusation that has some kind of sexual implication, we're supposed to believe it. And the reason is because women have not been believed. Women who actually have been abused have not been believed. But then we see that when race comes into it and many other elements, we have many examples in which that's not true. So this idea of someone always telling the truth is not helpful to us to really trying to parse what's actually complex about human experience. And what you find in those cases, these kind of gray zone cases, is that it's not the experience itself that holds the innate meaning or value. It's the individual, their history, their character, their context, and how it affects them. So if we could just respond to people's need for support without having to have these fake standards that do not apply to everybody, we'd be serving people in a much deeper way. We're gonna jump in for a quick ad break. With Friends Like These has a brand new sponsor, Beekeepers Naturals, the company on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet by creating clean and natural remedies like propolis throat spray. This throat spray is your daily dose of defense when it comes to naturally supporting your immune system and soothing a scratchy throat. With just three simple ingredients, the main one being that propolis. This spray is an incredible germ fighter that contains over 300 beneficial compounds. You know what you're supposed to take for a sore throat? Honey. This throat spray is like honey plus. It has all the soothing effects of tea and honey, but you don't have to boil water. You don't have to get water and it takes time. You can just spray. You just spray your throat. And there's something about spraying your throat and knowing you're hitting that sore throat right away. It makes it intensely satisfying. And thanks to Beekeepers Natural's obsession with research and testing, you can trust their remedies are always clean and highly effective. I'm also a fan of bee-powered honey. It's like a little shot glass of energy. It actually comes in a little vial, which makes it feel very scientific. I am uh, an intermittent faster, and caffeine is supposed to help you intermittently fast, um, but it can make me very jittery. The other day, I tried using this rather than a cup of coffee when I got a little hunger pangs, and you know what? It worked great. You deserve to feel your absolute best, which is why it's time to give your medicine cabinet an upgrade with Beekeepers Naturals. To save 15% on your first order, go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash withfriends or enter the code withfriends at checkout. Hold on for a bit. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash W-I-T-H-F-R-I-E-N-D-S to save 15% and meet your new medicine cabinet. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Calm. The app, not so much the actual feeling, but the app is really good. Because the app is about relaxing and about sleep. And, you know, sometimes, like I said, I want to start the day over I also want it to end as soon as possible. Like I'm crawling into bed at like seven every night and I want to just drift off to sleep to say 
a bedtime story, but I'm an adult, so I don't have someone to read it to me. Calm has bedtime stories. Calm has meditations. It is one of the most popular meditation apps there is, and we are excited to partner with them. It's the app designed to help you ease stress and get the best sleep of your life. It has a whole library of programs designed for healthy sleep, soundscapes, guided meditations, over 100 sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Stephen Fry, Kelly Rowland, and Laura Dern. And if you go to calm.com slash friends, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. Get the Calm app and experience a transformation in the way you sleep. For listeners of the show, again, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash friends. That's 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library and new content is added every week. Get started today at calm.com slash friends. That's calm.com slash friends. And back to the conversation with Sarah Schulman. So my own history background and, you know, what I have read thus far about abuse and experiencing abuse, you know, when you get into whether or not we should believe women, I, I do step back a little. That makes me like, huh, right? Um, I, I get a little nervous. When you flesh it out, especially when you talk about the role of white women in accusing black men, I'm like, oh, okay, right. Well, this there's a history here that we need to be very aware of and very careful of. I still am a little resistant, but I want to try something out, which is that is the better way to think... Maybe no slogan is good, but is a a better way to think about the idea, not believe women or believe survivors, but listen to? Is that the more? I just think that any person who's in pain and asks for support should get it. And they shouldn't have to justify it. That is the work of resolving conflict, right? Is once you talk to this person and hear their experience and hear what they're going through then you can know if what is happening is abuse or conflict. And then you can move to some sort of resolution. Like, for example, I'm often asked to hurt people. Like, often someone will say, why did you invite her? Why are you working with him? You shouldn't be talking to them. You know, this type of thing. Being told constantly to shun people and dehumanize them and... And the very first thing I do when that happens is to call that person, the object, and ask them, why do you think this is happening? And if you can ask somebody who's being blamed, why do you think this is happening? You get so much information that if you've done them, you would never, ever get. It doesn't mean that they're a great person. It doesn't mean that you're going to come away thinking that they're 100% wrong, but it gets mitigated. Because right now we're in this, you know, either, either, you know, you're innocent or guilty, and it's not all, always that way. And does this apply to situations like some of the higher profile Me Too situations where so- someone should call Harvey Weinstein and ask him what he thinks is going on? Well, he had a trial. He did say what he thought was. But, you know, that's. Whatever. He's disgusting and we all know it. And that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, people uh, at the most immediate 
Okay, in the intimate realm, in our society right now, we have a lot of division. And it's often based on something biological, like race, or you know, if you're related to somebody, or if you grew up in the same area, that somehow you're connected or you're in a clique, right? You're in a community, and people show their loyalty by hurting people that other people they identify with are having problems with. That's how we exhibit friendship and loyalty in this current time. Something that you say um, about that kind of relationship that I really loved, although it's hard, um, I believe it's a quote from someone else, the response to high levels of distress should sometimes be to create even higher levels of distress. That's Audre Lorde. That's Sarah Ahmed talking about Audre Lorde. Yeah. What an amazing concept. I mean... Well, the only way that you can... I mean, I think part of being dominant or part of being a perpetrator is the belief that you should never be uncomfortable. And that if someone else is making you uncomfortable, they are assaulting you. It's abuse. But the truth is, the only way that you can go through life never being uncomfortable is if everybody else's needs are entirely suppressed. In a healthy environment where people of different experiences and perspectives are interacting, there will be constant discomfort. It is a positive social dynamic because it's a product of difference. And anything that allows difference to be expressed makes a society healthier. Let me say that, and I feel this way about the question of free speech also. My answer is more speech. The more people communicate, the better. The more contradictions are on the table, the better. The more we understand that people's lives are complex and there's the contradiction and that nobody is pure, the better. I think I share the same basic opinion, which is that the answer to free speech is more speech. Um, But also, I know that there are some people who, for whatever reason, cannot handle certain topics or ideas in that moment, right? And to me, it is a kindness to say, you know what, I'm going to talk about this right now. And if you can't handle it, then you need to do whatever is going to be right for you in this moment. Oh, sure. Well, sometimes, I mean, I think people can say, look, we're not listening to each other. And why don't we take three weeks and then come back and ask this third party friend to help us talk to each other? That's great. But to say like, she's terrible and I'm never going to speak to her again and you shouldn't either. And then your click carries that out for 20 years. I mean, but that's everywhere. There are people everywhere who are not speaking to somebody who they once loved because of something that they cannot even accurately tell you what it, what it was. It's, it's become their identity. And that is pervasive. Let's take a quick break uh, for some capitalism. And we'll be right back. With friends like these, loves having Magic Spoon as a sponsor. <laughs> Today was one of those days I wanted to start over. There's no particular reason, except all of them, that we are living through something intolerable that no human should have to endure. And sometimes that hits harder than others. But here's the thing. I could start my day over. I could have some cereal and coffee and maybe even re-listen to the NPR morning news broadcast. And to make it very grown up and responsible, I could have magic spoon cereal rather than something sugary. Because Magic Spoon doesn't have sugar in it. Zero grams of sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. 
So many of you have asked, and now you can finally build your very own custom variety box with new flavors. There are the original, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry, and peanut butter and cinnamon. They taste amazing. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. I love the chocolate. I am really looking forward to getting the peanut butter and cinnamon and perhaps mixing them with the chocolate for that great sugar-salt combination that, I don't know, I love so much. So if you want to try Magic Spoon for yourself, go to magicspoon.com WFLT to build your own custom variety box and try it today. And be sure to use the promo code WFLT at checkout to get that free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use the code WFLT for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Monk Pack is a returning sponsor of With Friends Like These. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, and let's be honest, most don't taste very good, they don't fill you up, and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who has cracked the code when it comes to making snacks that taste amazing but have close to no sugar. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories. These days... When the days and hours all blend together, it's sort of hard to remember to eat at certain times. I find the Monk Pack bars to be great when I realize I have skipped breakfast or lunch, but it's like too soon to the next meal to have another full meal. These are great. They tide me over and don't make me crave further. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars are the perfect balance of sweet and salty, a crunch from the whole nuts and seeds, but still manage to be soft and chewy. They come in delicious flavors like pecan almond, sea salt dark chocolate, and peanut butter dark chocolate. As you can sort of tell there, those are all salty sweet combinations, which is my favorite combination in food ever. In addition to being keto-friendly, the bars are gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO. No soy, no trans fat, no sugar alcohols, or artificial colors. They taste incredible, and you can't beat the nutrition or satisfaction they provide. Try it for yourself, and you'll see. We have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering the code FRIENDS at checkout. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product, enter code FRIENDS at checkout, and save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, good food you can count on. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. And now, last segment of the show. So I want to jump right back in on this idea of people carrying around um, 30 years of hurt feelings and still not talking to the person. Because to me, again, this is as someone who's like been in all the different kinds of recovery and therapy and whatnot. There's a part of me that is like, well... Sometimes it's not a good idea to go back to that person just yet, right? Like, I do think that the ideal should be to go back to that person. But sometimes if you're not ready, it can make it worse. Yeah, but it depends on the, it depends on the specifics. Like, I can't generalize about that. But 
Like if you're shunning someone, you're dehumanizing another living person and refusing. If you see them on the street, you don't say hello. You know, what, what, what are you getting out of that? You know, like, okay, yes, you know, Biden won and somebody sent me a meme that said, praise Jesus, you know. So I sent it to everyone that I, whose num phone number I have. And it includes people who were mad at me, but some of them answered and some of them didn't. Like even a moment like this, where I know that they voted for Biden and I voted for Biden and like maybe they're mad at me because of an apple or something that happened 20 years ago, who knows? But they can't just say like, yeah, we did this because they're a self-image. They cannot let it go that they are not 100% the innocent victim. It would just destroy them because to, to, if you ease up, it means that you're like admitting that maybe it was more complex than I thought when I was 17 or whenever this thing happened, you know? I do know. And I guess I'm just trying to leave some room for the work that happens apart from the person that you have a conflict with. Um, because a lot of the stuff in this book, I think, is really amazing in an ideal and one of the things that happened to me reading this book, I'll be honest, is I have just this tremendous amount of respect and almost awe for you because the way you describe you handle these situations is just um, very emotionally sober. <laughs> You're very present and, and you seem very so unafraid of conflict yourself, like really ready to just dive in there. And I just, I read about some of these situations you talk about and I thought, well, I just, I don't know if I could do that in that exact you know i think i think one thing that happens is our after we have a conflict with somebody our and this is also true politically and geopolitically our new relationships our story about how that other party is bad become embedded and become part of the bonding of our new relationship so if you're with somebody and your story is that your ex was bad you can't suddenly you know say well maybe some of it was my fault and he wasn't so bad because you're all bonded around how bad he was. So if you let it go, then a lot of other things are going to change and shift and people are afraid of that. So we've talked a lot about how this is challenging. This, this is applies to you know, almost every aspect of human interaction from the most intimate to state level. Um, I do want to bring it to people listening right now. Because you do offer some frameworks. You look at a few different frameworks um, from different disciplines, ways of thinking about how one might personally kind of enact this. It's um, Yeah, it was kind of surprising. I looked, I compared a bunch of systems. One was like mid-century classical psychoanalysis. One was contemporary pop psychology, like the kind that you would buy a book in a drugstore or an airport or something. One was Al-Anon, the 12-step program for friends and family of addicts. And the fourth was um, mindfulness, you know, which is basically like an American Buddhism. Now, you would think that these systems really don't speak to each other because some are new age and some are more commercial or whatever. But what I found is that they all share two points of agreement. One is that they all believe in delay. 
that instead of like getting an email that you really don't know what the person means and you don't, you don't know what their tone is, you don't know what was going on with them when they wrote it, and just writing like, fuck you, don't ever call me again, send. Okay, they're saying don't do that. Delay. Think about it. Maybe ask them what they were, what was it, why they did this, or what, you know, how they were feeling, or, you know, just wait. So they all believe in delay and they all believe in the good group. You know, we know what the bad group is. The bad group is the group that demands that you hurt other people to show your loyalty. But the good group, which can be the 12-step meeting, the meditation group, the group therapy group, the group where there's no crosstalk, the group where you can say your truth and no one's going to jump on you. You know, that place where we can speak truth and not be punished and really try to investigate is something that we all need in our lives. And I was blown away that, you know, all these systems came to those same conclusions. I think that in dialogue with a, with a good group, if the emphasis is on self-development and readying oneself for that eventual truth and being ready to be wrong... I think it can take about however long it takes. And, but also in that good group, you're not going to turn other people against that person. You're just readying yourself to be able to face whatever it is that you don't want to face. I don't think you have to rush it. I guess I'm just speaking as someone who's had to do amends and stuff. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things in your book that's important, though, is that just every situation deserves consideration and dialogue, right? Like you, you may be prompted to act immediately, in some situations, you may make weeks in others. And then there are times where, if again, I think if it's like an individual, then who knows how long it's going to take. On a systems level, sometimes, yeah, the change is now. Like, got to go for it. I don't think that they're different. You know, I think everyone deserves to be heard. And I really want to say that if you can't um, come to a peace with someone you used to love over an email, how the hell are you going to build a better society with people who are very different from you? And that is a really wonderful kind of memorable way of, you know, obviously you wrote the book. It's a way of condensing the argument. But just my mind just goes to stuff that's the exceptions, which may be just my fault. You know, maybe just I'm an oppositional person, Right. Well, this is, I mean, this is not like this is the status quo. This is like a bizarre idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So you're used to people thinking of exceptions and trying to push back, basically. Well, I mean, most people who've actually read the whole book find that there's something there that's helpful. The only people who completely trash it are people who read like three words of the title. <laughs> well, I want mean, to be very clear. Like, there's a ton of it that's helpful. I just keep trying to, like, sh fold it around a bunch of different situations. And sometimes I find the that it flies quite smoothly in my brain. The folds, it folds perfectly. And then sometimes I find myself sort of fighting the origami of it, you know? Well, I mean, it's impossible to agree with everything in this book. You know, it's a new idea, and, that, and new ideas are rough. Like someone told me that Picasso said the innovator makes it ugly and the derivator makes it beautiful, you know. So maybe like someday some of these ideas will get really watered down and, you know, become. 
<laughs> There'll be t-shirts. But speaking of t-shirts, uh, my favorite critique of your book um, that made me laugh is someone who said, ideas are wonderful and it's impossible under capitalism to have this kind of engagement because it just takes too much fucking time. Well, Lana Povitz said that. But you know what? I disagree because I think being blaming other people for your pain can take your whole life. And actually taking the time to work something out with somebody is a lot less time than having a feud with them for 20 years. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And that is it for the show. I do highly recommend Sarah's book, Conflict is Not Abuse. It's a bit academic at times, but it's very straightforward, almost to a fault. It could be that, as she says, the reason why I am and other people are resistant to some of the ideas in her book is because she's the first person to really talk about them. I think that's a possibility. It's a book worth checking out, no matter what you think of what she has to say. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Lily Alexandrov. Izzy Margulies directs Book Traffic, Liam McMahon does the Twitter, and Whitney Pastrick coaches me through my own weird conflicts. I could not do the show without them. And I could not do the show without all of you. So, please, take care of yourselves. <laughs> 